Psalm 119. And let's pray together before we venture into the Word today. Father, thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You saw fit to speak into this world. First, to speak life. For we know by the Word of God all things were created. And we know it was Your Word that that generated, that began our very existence. And Lord, after speaking us into existence in this world and all things created, Lord, to know that You chose then to speak to us. And that God, outside of time and outside of space and dimension, as we know it, that You would reach into it, that You have, have made a wonderful way to get Your Word to us. And we praise You and thank You for that. We pray that You would give us deeper understanding and a greater passion for Your Word today. That uh, we would hunger and thirst after it and after these truths. But not just as a collected set of sayings or truths, but, but as the speaking of Your Spirit to our hearts as a life-changing direction. Father, open us up to Your Word today. And Lord, as we read this, I pray that our minds would be fresh and sharp and our spirits willing. And we ask Your Spirit now to be our teacher in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 119 is an epic psalm. We began on Wednesday night of this past week. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. 176 verses organized into eight verse stanzas, alphabetically and acrostically. This is why when you look at Psalm 119, all of the Hebrew letters, all 22 of them in order, are listed, at least in most of your Bibles. As the translators were looking at this, they realized that the first eight verses all began with the Hebrew Aleph. And the second eight verses all began with the Hebrew Bet, and the third eight verses with Gamel, and the fourth with Delet. And if you follow it through, that's the way this psalm is written and constructed. It's an interesting way to do a psalm with the Hebrew Aleph Bet walking us through consecutively. Obviously, we don't see that in the English, but it's there if you were to read this in Hebrew. And it's a fascinating, impressive, and as I said, epic psalm. Not just because it's long. But because where it goes and where it reaches and how it, it grabs hold of the heart that is willing to look at it. This is not a song that is filled with redundancies, as some have proposed. Oh, it's just about the word over and over and over and over for 176 verses. So if you got that, you got the psalm. Not so. Now, on Wednesday night, we covered the first 11 stanzas, 88 verses. And I said then, and I repeat it now, to do Psalm 119 justice... You've got to take a lot longer than a Wednesday night or a Sunday or a series of Sundays and Wednesdays. Okay, psalm 119 is a psalm for a lifetime. This is one that if you begin reading it now and read it every day until Jesus comes, you will not completely plumb the depths of this particular psalm. What's interesting is as you read the psalm, it is a psalm of a lifetime. Back from start to finish, there's an interesting progression in it. The earlier verses seem to speak with the, with the bold faith of a young man. The latter verses speak with the lines of age and experience. All of it inspired by the Holy Spirit, all of it coming from the heart of God, but it changes as you read through it. From excitement and passion to depth and wisdom, there's a wonderful human element to this psalm And yet again, from start to finish, Psalm 119 is inspired, God-breathed by the Holy Spirit of Christ. It was probably written by David. 
I believe it was. There are some commentators who have different opinions, different ideas. But I like what Spurgeon said about this. He said, if David did not write it, there must have lived another believer of exactly the same order of mind as David, and he must have addicted himself to psalmody with equal ardor, and have been an equally hearty lover of holy writ. That is God's word. But a man with the passion of David has the quality of dipping down as low in mind and spirit as, as he can reach high. David, we know, just from looking at his life, is an emotional guy, was an emotional guy, capable of great joy in the heights and deep depression in the depths. And you sense this in the psalm. In fact, listen to the last stanza that we read midweek, the 11th stanza, stanza beginning in verse 81. He writes, My soul languishes for your salvation. I wait for your word. My eyes fail with longing for your word. While I say, When will you comfort me? Though I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, I do not forget your statutes. What's a wineskin in the smoke? Well, I'm sorry that's only available to those who are here Wednesday night. 84. (laughs) How many are the days of your servant? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? The arrogant have dug pits for me. Men who are not in accord with your law. All your commandments are faithful. They have persecuted me with a lie. Help me! He cries. They almost destroyed me on earth. But as for me, I did not forsake your precepts. Revive me according to your loving kindness so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. Have you ever felt like someone almost destroyed you on earth? Have you ever felt like in your life there was somebody or some circumstance or something that was just after you and gunning for you and you're going, what? What did I do? How? Why do I deserve this? And David, for his part, experienced that in a tremendous way. This section here, my friends, it's the psalmist's darkest hour. It's called the midnight of the psalm. And it's written in the emotional winter of the life of the psalmist, clinging desperately to the one thing The only thing that he has, the only thing that he knows can see him through, and that's the Word of God. Everything else is falling around him, but he's clinging to the Word, desperately holding on. And as we come to the twelfth stanza, designated now by the letter Lamed, we join him coming out now of the darkness of despair, and there's a reason for it. Watch this. Verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your Word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. You establish the earth and it stands. They stand this day according to your ordinances. For all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts. For by them you have revived me. I'm yours. Save me. For I have sought your precepts. The wicked wait for me to destroy me. I shall diligently consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. You know, we like to know when things began. There's something in us all, and and you see this in the world around us, we check food labels for expiration dates. You notice that. God forbid that we should ever drink milk past the little purple date stamped on the carton. What might happen? If you you drink it the day after, be careful. We put great stock in things like the year a company got its start. You notice that? Businesses will have their established and then have the date. 
Levi Strauss and Company, established 1853. 1853, they started making blue jeans. And actually, I think you can purchase some of those jeans today, and they're very expensive. (laughs) Because the older and more bedraggled a pair of jeans are, you know, the more they're worth. It cracks me up. I I have actually a pair of um, American Eagle jeans on. And I, I may have shared this before, but they've got a they've got a tear right here, a real cool looking kind of rip in the pocket. But if you look down the shelf, every single pair have the rip in the exact same place. All the way down. I don't know what that has to do with anything, just thought I'd share. Hostess snack cakes. One of my favorite treats in the world, established 1925, and there are Twinkies still on 7 Eleven shelves from 1925. I know it. I'm sure of it. There is something about longevity that gives us confidence. Something about knowing it was established here, they've been in business for a while, and therefore we can trust them. Churches do it. St. Elmo's Church, established 1952. And the Muppets got together and began to worship. St. Elmo's Church. You'll find it on Sesame Street, you know. Sorry. I love churches like First Baptist. We were here first. Just want you to know that. Second Baptist, because we're retooled and better than the first. You know? I'm still waiting for Baptist 3.0 to come out. That would be a cool church to visit, you know, on the cutting edge. Cheryl and I moved to Virginia several years ago where we did youth ministry for for a handful of years. And, And while we were living there, we began to visit just different small towns and on days off go driving. And we began running into churches with established dates on them like 1617. I was like, wow. I thought 10 years old was an established church. You know, I, was in Cal- I grew up in California. Nothing's you know, old there. Everything's new. 1723 was a date that we saw. 1801. I especially like the stone sign that I saw affixed to one church that said, established 33 A.D. Ah, that was cool. But again, listen. The declaration of David the psalmist as he came out of the darkness of his despair was this. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Settled, not sobbed. The word is established. The word is fixed. The word stands firm. God's word is established, secure, and settled. And whether you're in the valley, on the mountaintop, or just moving through life, the settled word will see you through. And so there's power in this. And he comes to this at just the right time. Your word is settled. And I can trust it. And my confidence can be in it. And I might not be able to feel my way through anything else. But man, I can see. God, I can see what your word has to say. Because it's settled. It's fixed. It's established in the heavens. Some things to note here about the word of God. As he has brought it to us. As he gives it to us. The first thing is that the word is consistent. Established, yes. Consistent. Contrary to the offhand comments of the misinformed, the New Testament Scripture does not in any way, shape, or form contradict the Old. The New Testament is not in lieu of the Old. It does not replace the Old. It is the final expression. It is, in a wonderful way, the fulfillment of the Law and the Prophets. This is a complete book. And if you deny yourself the opportunity to study through and read through the Hebrew Scriptures, by the time, or as you're studying the New Testament Scriptures, you're not going to get them. You're not going to understand them like you do when you have the application of the Hebraic roots of the entire Scripture. I had lunch with Jim this last week and we had a great time 
down in Oak Harbor just talking and sharing. And one of the first things he, he mentioned was he's studying James, or Galatians right now. And he said because of the study of Galatians, it, it actually sent him to do a little background checking on how the Book of Mormon was written, how Joseph Smith received that word how uh, Muhammad received the Koran and, and what that looked like. And he was sharing some thoughts from that and what he had actually read from the Koran, from the Book of Mormon, both written centuries after the final word was penned. I mean, the Book of Mormon was written 1,800 years later. The Koran written 600 years later. But the Word of God, listen, is not up for revision. It's not to be retooled or to be rewritten. The Word is settled, established. It's done. There's no Bible 3.0. You know, there, there, there's not a new version. There's no software. This is not a software in development. This is not an ever-evolving technology. The Word of God is settled and it is consistent. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, I am amazed that you're so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of God for a different gospel. And it happens in the church. It happens in the church when we set aside the Scripture for experience or for other things and we're not testing and checking everything by the Word of God. We're going to go out and do this new thing because there's got to be something else other than... And so off we go in this weird direction. The Word is consistent. And Paul would have issue with that. He says, I'm, I'm amazed you're quickly deserting, so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And then he says this, and listen, this is a serious statement. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. And what Paul is getting at here is not only is the word consistent throughout these pages, as you will see as we know it is, but it's consistent throughout time and eternity. This is the consistent word of God. What I'm saying is this, if if you believe what you hear from God today is not, or if what you believe you hear from God today is not in complete agreement with His Word, then it's not from God. If you're hearing something, and this is the problem Muhammad had, and this is the problem Joseph Smith would later have, if what you think you're hearing from God is not completely consistent with this Word, it is not from God. Because he's not going to contradict himself. The Word has been settled. And any other Word... Is not by the Spirit of God. In fact, John went so far as to write in Revelation 22.18, and he was speaking about the book of Revelation, but also about the finality of the Word of God. He said, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. That is serious business. Why would God be so serious? Paul saying what he said in Galatians. John then saying what he says in Revelation. Why so serious, Lord? Because I don't want you to be confused. And you know what? This book is not here to confuse us. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in the heavens. The consistent word of God. And as far as I'm concerned, that settles it. 
God's Word is either consistent or it's not His Word. Now in Psalm 119, David's going to use ten, well in the whole psalm, he uses ten synonyms for the consistency of the Word of God. Six of those synonyms are in this stanza alone. You might want to jot these down. I think it will help some understanding of, of the Word. We see different words for the Word. For example, the first one we see quite a bit of is the law. The word law, translated in the Hebrew Scriptures I've shared before, is Torah. It's the Torah. It's used 25 times. Now note this, in Matthew 10, Jesus used the parable or the parallel word for law in Aramaic to describe all of the, the, the Hebrew Scriptures. So as far as Jesus was concerned, when He said the law, He was talking about the quote-unquote Old Testament, or what I like to call the Older Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. So law is the first one. The second one is the word. In the Hebrew, the word word is davar. Davar. It's used 20 times in Psalm 119, and it's the Hebrew title for the book of Deuteronomy. Davar, the devarim, the words. A third synonym. The sayings or promises. Sayings or promises. Same word, it's imra in the Hebrew. It's used 19 times. The fourth synonym the commandments, miswa. Miswa is used 22 times, and it signifies absolute authority. When you hear the word commandment, it is a word spoken by one who has the right to command. The boss, the king, the leader, the captain. Commandments. Now the next two words that are also synonyms for word used throughout, typically go with or are used alongside commandments. That's statutes. So we have the law, the word, the sayings, the commandments, the statutes, which is hukim, the hukim in the Hebrew, and that's used 21 times. The second word, or the next one that goes along with commandments, is judgments or ordinances. The word there, mishpat, it's used 19 times. The seventh word, and you'll see this, interestingly, you see this only in the Psalms. And specifically in Psalm 119, and it's the word precepts. Y'all have heard of precepts ministry. Well, it's the word in the Hebrew, pikudim. Pikudim. And it's a poetical word for directions, again, only used in the Psalms. In the King James Version, you'll see precepts used in a couple of other places, but that's not the Hebrew word. The translators, for some reason, chose to use it where they did. But precepts is especially meaningful for David, and I'll explain why in a minute. So law, words, sayings, commandments, statutes, judgments, precepts. Number eight, testimony. Adah in the Hebrew. Adah used 22 times and that's a solemn declaration. The last two are interesting. The ninth synonym is simply the way. Or the ways. The word derek in the Hebrew. Five times it's used in the singular, six times in the plural form. The way or the ways of God. Also speaking of the word. And the tenth one, like the ways, is simply path. Ora, the path. Five times it's used as a parallel to the way. Now, I share all that, and I recognize we're on the verge of being a little collegiate and scholarly here on a Sunday morning. But here's the thing. What does all this mean? All of this consistency. What does it really mean in the midnight of the soul? And what does understanding law, words, saints, commandments, all this stuff... How does that help me when I'm distressed? How does that help when I'm in the darkness, when I'm in affliction? How is it helpful to David or anyone else 
in the dark hours of depression. Well, whether it's called the law, the word, the sayings, the commandments, the statutes, the judgments, the precepts, the testimonies, the truth is, gang, that the word is the way through affliction. The word is the path through trouble. Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And I was just told this morning, okay, it was Galen. He said last night that he went to bed and just kind of down. And so he opened up the Bible and he started reading from Second Peter chapter 2. Is that it? John, do you remember? First Peter chapter. Oh, you're right there. Hey, Galen. First Peter chapter 2. In fact, you know what? It's not in my notes, but check this out. Listen to what, what Galen was led to read last night. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word. So that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And coming to Him as a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So here's Galen in a place that I have been many times where you're just you're down and you're not sure and you're saying, Lord... I need a little help here. And he is led where? To the Word of God. And I'll let Galen tell you the rest of the experience. Not now, on his own time. But joy came. And happiness and and a lifted spirit because the Word is the path through trouble, the way through affliction. Why? Because it's been established. And not since 1853 or 1925 Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. It's established, it's firm, you can count on it. The word is consistent. What I'm saying is that the settled word settles the soul. Second thing to note, the word is not only consistent, it's composing. The word is composing. Last week, and I know you all saw this or heard about it in the news, Jared Lochner shot 19 people at a peaceful rally in Tucson, Arizona. Six of those people died, including nine-year-old Christina Taylor Green. Thirteen of those were wounded, and the most publicized target was Representative Gabrielle Giffords, who apparently is getting better on a daily basis. That's the latest that I've heard. Interesting, at the memorial service last Wednesday, President Obama quoted twice from the Bible. This is what he quoted. Psalm 46, verse 4, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. And he read from Job, chapter 30, verse 26, When I expected good, then evil came. When I waited for light, then darkness came. That's ironic to me because... Even as that memorial was going on, here on Wednesday night we were studying. I didn't know about him quoting from the Bible, but I asked the question last Wednesday night, why do people so often turn to the Bible in times of tragedy? Have you noticed that? The hospital rooms filled with the reading of Scripture. Funerals always or tending to reference different verses. And it's because the settled word settles my soul. 
President Obama did not quote from the Koran. Not this time. (laughs) He didn't quote from the Book of Mormon. He didn't read from the pages of the Baha'u'llah. No other so-called books that were so-called holy books or religious books were even mentioned. Why? Because none others are settled in heaven. None others are established but the Word of God alone. Now someone might say, isn't it a little arrogant or self-serving to say that your religious book does what others cannot do? Well, let me answer that. First of all, I didn't write it. It's his book. Secondly, it's not a religious book. It's a relationship book. And thirdly, the proof is in the settling of the soul. The proof is that this word settles and comforts and consoles in a way no other word can do. Which is why so often people, even non-believing people, will turn to the Bible in distressing times. The word is consistent. The word is composing. Number three, the word is certain. Verse 90, your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. You establish the earth and it stands. The word is certain. And as an example of the certainty of God's Word, David points to the created world. God's works. He does the same thing back in, excuse me, back in Psalm 19. He spends the first half of the psalm talking about the works of God. He says in Psalm 19, verse 1, The heavens tell of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. And so the first half of Psalm 19, He talks about creation. And now creation itself just talks about God, declares God, spills forth His glory and His handiwork. But then the last half of Psalm 19, He talks about the Word. He goes on to describe the perfection and the certainty and the rightness and the purity and the endurance and the absolute truth of the Word of God. Because, gang, the works of God are but an indication of the certainty of the Word of God. God's works declare the certainty of God's Word. Because the works of God, the works of God are a a tangible and visible and audible and smellable (laughs) Evidence of the certainty of things. You know, we're told that um, global warming is going to be a very dangerous thing by the year 3000. In fact, it's not looking good. (laughs) By the year 3000, we're told at this point, based on recent models and studies, that there's already too much carbon emission in the world, and by the year 3000, we're in trouble. (laughs) You know, (laughs) here's my problem with the rhetoric on global climate change. It's very simple. It's not that I'm politically anti one thing or another. Okay, maybe I'm, but that's not the issue here. Here's my issue. The whole global climate change deal ignores the certainty of God's word over creation. It ignores that God has a hand in creation at all. It says that somehow we have to turn things around. We have to save things. Somehow we are smart enough to mess up this world and this creation that He created. And it ignores the fact that God has a determined end for this world. 
And God is working out His plan for this world. No matter what man does, God is in charge of this world. And people talk about, you know, severe weather changes and earthquakes and floods and volcanoes erupting. Well, here's an inconvenient truth for you. And it seems to have escaped the climate change alarmist. Winter came this year. Right on schedule. Evening still gives way to morning every day as it has since the first day of creation. The earth is still spinning on its tilted axis. The sun still hasn't burned out or burned us up. The birds still fly in the heavens and the fish still swim in the sea. Oh, wait a minute, Rick. Birds and fish are dying. (laughs) Yes, I realize this. You know why the birds fell from the sky? They actually crashed into our national debt ceiling. That's the problem. There. So. <laughs> you know, people do say, though, and, and spiritually speaking, Rick, don't you see all the global upheaval? And you know what? I do. Absolutely. But it's not because of global climate change, gang. It's godly communication with a people who are stubborn not to listen. Godly communication? Birds and fish dying? How is that God communicating? Keep your finger there and turn over to the book of Hosea, chapter 4. This was pointed out to me by, by my brother Brian. And I was wondering about this, and it's an interesting occasion. Anything, anytime you see something weird, like, you know, 100,000 birds show up dead. I mean, that's weird. A million fish show up on the shore dead. What, you know, what, is that us? What, what's going on? And the question, gang, the question we have to ask as believers in Jesus Christ is, Lord, are you telling us something? Or how does a God outside of time and outside of space and outside of dimension, how does He get word to His people? Well, I'll tell you one way he does it. He speaks to us through creation. And he'll use creation to get our attention, to wake us up. He's done it throughout all history. Why do we think suddenly in our day and age he stops? Watch this. Hosea chapter 4, verse 1. Listen to the word of God, O sons of Israel. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land, because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing... Deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns. And everyone who lives in it languishes along with the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky and also the fish of the sea disappear or literally are taken away. Interesting. Yet let no one find fault. Let no one offer reproof for your people are like those who contend with the priest. So you will stumble by day, and the prophet also will stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed. Note this. My people are destroyed. Pay attention to this. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of God, I also will forget your children. Israel had a problem. The land was in bad shape. And things were falling apart. And Hosea prophesied, here's the reason God is speaking to us. And the Lord is saying, the land is mourning, and I hear the land mourning, and therefore, because of your lack of knowledge, you're being destroyed. Even to the point of fish and birds disappearing. Well, wait, Rick. Hold on, Pastor. Don't get out ahead of us. You see, it says this is for the sons of Israel. 
Okay, we're grafted in. And the principles that apply to Israel apply to us. And there are things we see in the way God spoke to and dealt with and handled Israel that are consistent over time with the way He handles people. Right, Brian? And so we need to recognize that there is a certain word which stands forever over all creation. And the student of the word goes to the word to understand what's going on in the world. Did you? When the fish died, did you go, okay, fish, fish, where's the fish thing? Brian did. Birds are going. Earthquakes. Epic disasters. How many of you opened up the Word when Katrina hit? How many of us were in the Word when the tsunami hit? And these things happen. And I ask that question knowing that many people, many people, whether they go to church or not, went to the Word on 9-11. Now I'm not saying God caused the terrorists to fly into the buildings. Don't get me wrong. Please don't misinterpret my words. But I'm saying that when epic events happen, when things happen in this world, especially on what we would call a natural basis, Mother Nature's upset. There is no Mother Nature, but the Father of Nature who created all things may very well be upset. And what's interesting is people turn to the Word to get answers, which is exactly what God wants in the first place. And these things will go on. And someone will go, is there something in here? And then they keep reading and they find out about Jesus and salvation and grace. And that's what God intended. We know the earth is going to come to an end, but it's going to come to an end at the time of His choosing. And the apostles were there with Jesus and He was there in Jerusalem about to ascend. They're up on the Mount of Olives and and, and they're talking. They say, Lord, is, is it this time that You're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I like the fact that Jesus doesn't deny that. He doesn't deny that that's going to happen. What he says is, it's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority. The certain word. Established, settled in the heavens. He has fixed it by His authority. Psalm 102, verse 25 says, You of old have founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. All of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing you will change them, and they will be changed. Which I believe Paul is referencing in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Psalm 102.27 says, But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. That's the certain word. The certain word of God that will stand forever over all creation. Uh, Back in Psalm 119, verse 91, They stand this day according to your ordinances or judgments. For all things are your servants. Listen to that. All things are your servants. All what things? All created things. Everything made by the hand of God was made for the purpose of serving God. Paul says in Colossians 1.16, all things have been cre- created through Him and for Him. He's before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And so it seems to me that we have a choice in this world. We have a decision to make to be servants of God Most High or to serve our own interests. And that's the choice. We can be servants of His or we can be servants of self But serving self doesn't always turn out so well, does it? All things, from the tiniest Adam to the offspring of Adam himself, all creation 
ultimately is going to serve him. Verse 92, If your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts. For by them you have revived me. I am yours. Save me. For I have sought your precepts. Number four in our list. And the fourth one? Yeah, the word is consistent. The word is composing. The word is certain. Number four, the word is covenanted. I don't even know if covenanted is a word, but it it is. Covenanted. Notice in verses 93 and 94, he uses the word precepts twice. I'll never forget your precepts. I have sought your precepts. Now, I mentioned this earlier. The word precepts, pikudim, is especially meaningful to David. Why? Because precepts, used only in the Psalms, used by David almost exclusively, the word precepts means directions to be obeyed in a covenant relationship. That's precepts. If you enter into a covenant relationship, this is the word that describes direction or instruction that you obey as regards or related to that covenant. David was in a covenant relationship. The Mosaic Law. The Law of Moses was a covenant relationship, a conditional covenant Where God said to the people of Israel, if you do this, I'll do this. You have Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Blessings and curses. Choose one. If you do the right thing, if you follow my law, if you follow my commandments, you're going to be blessed. If you reject them, you're going to be cursed. Covenant relationship. It's the only conditional covenant that God ever gave man, and that's the law of Moses. But in this law, God had some particular precepts for the king. Some of you perhaps remember, the Lord said, don't load up on treasure, kings of Israel. Don't load up on wives, and don't load up on horses. Treasure, wives, horses. Which is the downfall of almost every king. But there was one more precept to be kept. Deuteronomy 17, verse 18. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. You want to be royal? You want to be king-like? Then you do that. But every king was told in the law that they were to write a copy of the law. They were to come into their royal office and first things first, go to the throne room, sit down, pull out the scroll, get the priests around to make sure it's done right, and you begin to copy the law. You go through that. You write the whole thing down. And then once you're finished, you keep that scroll. That's your personal copy to have with you every single day of your life. And David did this, which is one reason why we know he loved the Word so much. Because he had the Word. Because he feasted on the Word. Because he was in the Word. He loved the Word. And that's a, that's a truism for you right there. You want to love the Word? You've got to be in the Word. If you're not in the Word, you're not going to love the Word. Because you won't know the Word. You don't know what you're missing, so why would you care? Why would you love it? But if you're in the Word, and the more you're in the Word, the more your love for God's Word increases. Well, David was there. Covenanted as a king to keep the Word. But there was another covenant relationship that David had with God, wasn't there? What we now call, looking back, the Davidic covenant 2 Samuel chapter 7 describes that covenant in which God promised, David, I'm going to build you a house. 
In fact, I'm going to establish your throne forever. One of your line, one of your seed is going to sit on that throne. And I guarantee this, and I'm making my covenant with you, David. And there wasn't anything David could do about it. It wasn't conditional. It was unconditional. God says, I will do this. And in Psalm 89, David writes the following. He says, I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said, loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. I've made a covenant with my chosen, God says. I have sworn to David my servant, I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. So when David says, I will never forget your precepts, He's saying, I will never forget your instructions that you gave to me via covenant. I will never forget the direction you gave me in our covenant relationship, the relationship I have with you. And that covenant relationship, gang, that God established in David was fulfilled in Jesus Christ as Jesus came of the line of David. Why should I, like David, never forget the precepts of God? Because I am a beneficiary of the new covenant in Jesus' blood. The word is covenanted. The word is certain, composing, and consistent. Verse 95. The wicked wait for me to destroy me, and I shall diligently consider your testimonies. Now this is an interesting practical matter. It actually brings us back to the idea of the composing word. Of the way the word composes us. Let me read this to you again. Listen to it. The wicked wait for me to destroy me. Okay, that's what the enemies, the wicked, those against you, that's what they're doing. I shall diligently consider your testimonies. He doesn't say, the wicked are waiting for me, and I'm going to brew over this one. The wicked are waiting for me, and I'm going to fester in my own bitterness of what they're trying to do to me. Those who are planning evil things against me, those who are out to harm me, I'm just going to sit there and figure out how I would love to go and just beat the snot out of them. No. They may do that. Those set against you may seek your harm. For your part, you seek the Word. You go to the Word of God. I'm not to sit and worry about those who are set against me. David said in Psalm 3 verse 5, I lay down and I slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. You might say, but... But Rick, it's not the 10,000 I'm worried about. It's the one with the big fat mouth. That's who I'm worried about. It's just that one person said against me who's causing me all the problems. Psalm 56 verse 11 says this, In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? What can you do? Yeah, but he... Composure. Composure. But but you don't know the sheep. Composure. Let me try and put a practical spin on this. Before picking up the phone, before firing off a defensive text, or posting an especially vicious attack on Facebook, how about picking up the word of composure? How about just saying, as as a rule of thumb, here's what we're going to do. In fact, I'd love to just say this is what we're going to do as a fellowship. Before we return anger for anger, before we get mad, before we get defensive, before we put up our fists and get ready to fight, before we do any of that, we're just going to spend ten minutes in the Word of God. Just ten. Stop, open the Word, read. Meditate. Just pray. And then act. 
Because your actions will by then be composed, because this is a composing word that God has given to us. Believe me, I know it's hard to remain composed when people are on the attack, when there are judgments and accusations, but like David, we are called to diligently consider his testimonies. Verse 96. I have seen a limit to all perfection. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. This is an interesting verse. I've seen a limit to all perfection. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. What are you saying? What do you mean here? He's saying this. Even though perfection has its boundaries, even though perfection has a point at which it is reached, you reach perfection. There is a place where, okay, this is the framework of perfection. Gang, the commandments of God are boundless. Beyond perfect. Oh, how can it be beyond perfect? God is. Beyond even our concept of perfection. This word here, exceedingly broad. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. It's, it's, in Hebrew, it's ma'od rachab, which I like just saying that. Ma'od rachab. I say that to Cheryl. Anytime I, I'm, we're having an argument and she's winning, ma'od rachab. <laughs> it means completely wide open. You see, the word that has been established in the heavens forever is an eternal word. It is wide open. We can't even comprehend how vast is the Word of God. The Word is not just perfect, gang. It is complete. The Word is complete. Going beyond the framework, the boundaries of our understanding of perfection. And that's what he's saying. Even perfection. I've seen a limit to perfection. But there's no limit to the complete Word of God. Why? Gang, because the Word of God is God. The Word of God is God. I'm not saying bow down to the book. I'm saying the Word, whether written or spoken, is the breath and the expression of God Himself. And John put it beautifully. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And John goes on a few verses down saying, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John was giving a fantastic realization that the Word goes beyond perfection. Because it doesn't just talk about the Christ, it is the very breath of the Christ who is Himself true God and eternal life. And I still, I, I'm, I've been asking all week, Lord, help me to understand this better. I can't. I, I don't even fully understand what I'm telling you, that the Word of God, written and spoken, is the Word of God, Jesus Christ, one and the same, and there, there's something fantastic here. The Word is complete because the Word is Christ. The Word is Christ. I go to the Word and I see Jesus. I listen to the Word and I hear Jesus' voice. I learn to speak the Word and it becomes in me the language of faith in Jesus Christ. And we are called as a people of Christ, the body of Christ, to move beyond just biblical understanding into a place of relationship where we're walking with Jesus. Where we're not arguing about the validity of His Word or the significance of what's written here versus what He's speaking to me. It doesn't matter. If it's the Lord, it's the Lord. 
If it's Jesus' word, it's His word. If it's His spoken word, which is going to be consistent with His written word, I want all that He is willing to pour out. And it's wide open. It's consistent, established in the heavens, settled forever. Psalm 119 is alphabetical because just as our alphabet provides the building blocks for language, so the Word of God provides the building blocks of the language of faith. And that's what he's trying to teach us. In Romans 10.17, Paul says, Faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. Literally hearing by the Word Christ. Faith comes by hearing the Word Christ. Because the Word is Christ. What are you worried about today? What are you stressing over? Settle down. The Word is settled in heaven. And if you're not certain of heaven this morning, if you aren't sure of an eternal life, you can settle the matter right now by faith in the Word who is Jesus Christ. By putting your full trust in Him. There is salvation in no one else. Peter said... There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. The Word is Christ. Consistent, composing, certain, covenanted, and complete. Jesus, the Word made flesh, is the complete Word of God. Forever, O Lord, Your Word is settled in heaven. Praise You, Father. Praise You, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah to You. We praise You because You are the perfect Word. You are the complete Word. And Father, as You spoke all things into existence, Lord Jesus, as You created all things, so so You call us to Your certainty and Your consistency. You call us, Lord, to completion in You. We hear Your voice, Jesus, as You say, it is finished, it is complete, it is done. All things have already been settled. And this morning, Lord, I pray that You'd help us to just take one more step towards You in deepening our love relationship with You. And may our worship this morning, Lord, reflect that as we sing and praise You now in Jesus' name. Amen.